0: Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. Stephanie Lucianovic has stories to tell, and that's a very good thing. She's the author of The League of Picky Eaters, Suffer and Succotash, A Picky Eater's Quest to Understand Why We Hate the Foods We Hate, The End of Something Wonderful, A Practical Guide to a Backyard Funeral, Vampire Smarts Guide, The Essential Vampire Predating Guide, and her latest book, Hello Star a very personal one aimed at young readers. Stephanie's inspiration for Hello Star actually came from her son, who, after learning at school that stars eventually explode as part of their life cycle, got very upset. His reaction resonated with his mom, who took matters into her own hands, so to speak. And we're going to talk much more about that. Stephanie has also been a contributor to the New York Times motherlode blog, the Washington Post, Entertainment Weekly, CNN's, Etocracy and The Atlantic Wire, to name just a few. So let's meet and get to know Stephanie. Thank you so much for joining me remotely from California.
1: Yes, thank you for having me. I'm in the Bay Area of California, specifically Menlo Park, Palo Alto area. Stephanie, I often ask
0: this of the women who are authors because writing is so not a natural act for me. Even down to writing an email. I'm just sitting, and I used to write news for a living, and it was just, it just didn't come naturally to me, so I'm assuming that it did for you,
1: and did you like to write way back when? Yes and no, honestly. I never saw myself as a writer. I was not an eight-year-old kid who was like, I'm going to be an author, and I never deviated from that. I liked to tell stories. Way back when I was a kid, I would I would regale my dentist with stories about what our cats were doing at home. He was, I loved him. He was such an amazing dentist, rest his soul now. But he, he was wonderful. And he listened to every single story and remember the names of the cats and everything. How do you have a conversation with your dentist when your mouth is wide open and his hands are in the Well, it was usually the the part between the hygienist doing stuff and, you know, the dentist coming in and and sort of doing the chat before he then examines what the hygienist did, you know? So it was that little social moment. Gotcha. I loved telling, you know, my parents' long-winded stories about what happened at school and I would tell friends' stories. So I was a storyteller, but writing was not as natural for me either, Um, physically, actually. I remember it being difficult for me to, to write in, you know, to handwrite the, you know, it was just, my handwriting was not the best as a kid. And a lot of kids have the same issue and it's gotten better, but um, I loved books. I loved reading and I knew I was going to be an English major in college. And I just never thought I would, I never thought I was good enough, honestly, Mm -hmm. to be a writer. Mm -hmm. I never Mm -hmm. thought that anyone would want to read anything I had to write. While I was at college, I still love to send long emails to my parents about what was going on on campus and tell funny stories and make make them laugh. Uh, Then I worked in publishing and I worked on the editorial side. I worked for Little Brown, in fact, the company that is publishing Hello Star. I worked um, for a fine arts and photography imprint called Bullfinch, which I think is no longer in existence, but they did the Ansel Adams books. They did a lot of Mark Seliger, a lot of these big, fancy coffee table books.
0: Sure, sure.
1: But again, was not a writer. Um, I did writing for the catalog copy we had to do or the marketing copy that they require the editors to submit. But I did not feel strongly that I was good at it. That said, I wondered, I always thought, well, could I ever write a book? Could I ever be on that side of things? I had the opportunity to do a freelance assignment for a website that made fun of television back in the day, we would literally sit on the couch, watch TV, write about what we saw, and, and crack jokes, and that became this huge, very popular website called Television Without Pity. Mm-hmm. And I submitted a writing sample, and uh, my editor said she hired me because I used the word flounce to describe <laughs> how Dawson from Dawson's Creek was leaving the room, and I ended up working for them for over ten years. So. Once And during that time, honestly, I still didn't think I was a good writer and I was learning. Every time I wrote something new, I would look at how my editor edited it from my draft to what went up on the website. And I would literally compare to find out how she punctuated things, how Mm -hmm. she tightened my jokes, all of that. Was was there a lot of surgery done? In the beginning, there might have been, um, as I continued on and felt more confident with the site, I not as much. Mm -hmm. And I think as she became more confident with me as a writer, but in the beginning, there was some, you know, some editorial work that she was doing for sure. And I appreciated it because it it taught me how to write, which is how I felt when I wrote my first book, Suffering Succotash, that I learned how to write a book by writing that book. In the beginning, I, I thought I can't do this, even though I had been a freelance writer by that time for... It's been 20 years now. It was probably about 15 years I'd been a freelance writer for blogs, food writing, stuff like that. So I was confident that I could write. But every time I had a new project, I felt, I don't know what I'm doing. I can't do this. I'm not a writer.
0: Gotcha. So when you were doing, getting those assignments, those were, I'm using the term in quotes, journalist assignments, like reporting. You were not writing fiction. I was not
1: writing fiction. I was writing in reaction to something else that mm-hmm. existed. I mean, Suffering Succotash is a um a nonfiction narrative almost memoir, but it was um it required investigation by me. It required research into um, the science of picky eating, genetics, learning about how they are trying to determine what is connected in our brain, what what you know might drive picky eating, especially as it continues in adults and those kinds of things. Mm-hmm but again, not fiction. I gotcha. So
0: at some point you said to yourself, I can make a living doing this.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Make make a living, make a living in quotes. (laughs) Um, I thought I could get paid. I thought I, I, you know, I I would get paid whether it was going to, it's not my soul, definitely not my um, what supports this entire family. But yes, at some point I just sort of continued but I will say, after writing Suffering attached, which was published in uh, 2012, I was done. I, I had um, one son by then. Uh, I was expecting another. And I thought, OK, I'm going to go back to editorial freelance work. I don't ever want to write another book again. It's, mm-hmm. And it's not because it was a horrific project, but it, it was extremely daunting for me. And I had imposter syndrome almost the whole way. But I thought, I've proved it. I can write a book. I don't have to do it. I don't have to prove anything anymore. I'll just go back to the less stressful environment of editing other people's stuff. To
0: get a little psychological for a second, why do you think you had all of that? Where did that come from? This sort of lack of, well, no, this, (laughs) um, this lack of convincing yourself that, you know, screw it. I'm going to do this. I mean, and letting other, letting other people sort of
1: judge your own, work. Did you know what I mean in your own head? You mean, where, where did I just decide to just go ahead and do it anyway? Yes. Where was the lack of confidence? Well, to, to be honest, it was to prove something to myself. And the same thing happened with writing picture books. I just wanted to see if I could do it. And I thought I would stop at writing one picture book. Mm-hmm. Um, but the lack of confidence is probably for me as a overthinker, as an anxious person, as someone who has unfortunately worried too much, probably my entire life about what other people think Mm -hmm. it Mm -hmm. was. And I mean, supportive parents, supportive friends, supportive family. But, you know, even through all that, there's always this voice that is like, you know, my mother would say, I, I knew you could make it. I knew you would do that. And I would in my head think, but I didn't know it. And that's yeah. the important thing is that yeah. I didn't know it. And it wasn't because they said you can't, they were always like, of course you can. And I thought, oh eh, man, maybe you're wrong. You don't know as much about this industry as I do. I mean, it was a lot of, for me, it's a lot of talking myself into and out of things. Gotcha. Times.
0: You were having these conversations with you all the time. Very
1: much. It was never, I mean, there was only one situation in my career in which I Went to who I thought was a sympathetic friend in the food writing industry and sort of pitched my idea that would later become my book. And she kind of cocked her head at me and she was like, "Sounds like a good idea for a magazine article, but not a book." Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> did you spite. tell her to fuck off? And then you went ahead and did it anyway. Obviously. You know what? I went ahead and did it anyway. I didn't say anything to her at the time, but it it did change my relationship with her completely. Forever after that, because it was someone I had seen. We had this sort of small support group of women in the Bay Area who are food writers. And it was sort of like, all right, I'm going to do it. I'm just going to go ahead and do it anyway. And I did to Mm -hmm. prove it to myself, to her, to the world. So spite can be a a driving factor in this. things. Oh, absolutely. Yes, absolutely.
0: So talk about how it came to be that you wrote the books that you did. I know you started with Suffering Succotash, because that was basically your first four-way.
1: That was my first book. That was my husband saying, you know, you're so interested in how you went from being a picky adult, because I was picky until I was about 27, to being a culinary school student, to being a food writer who also edited cookbooks for William Sonoma, who worked on a Jacques Pepin cooking show in the back kitchen. How did you get there? This you is, were a picky eater, and you did all of that. Boy, that's anomalous, you, know. you know. Well, that's but that's what um, that's what happened for suffering test. I went through those steps of like, how did I get from there to here? And I talk about why I think things changed for me, how I became more adventurous in food, what I was watching on TV, what I was reading, who I was dating, my then boyfriend, now husband. Um, how I was being exposed to food, and then how I got so intensely interested in food that it overcame and it started to override my pickiness. and I wanted to try more foods. You know, he was so non-judgmental. We never even talked about it. I think one time I did say to him, I'm kind of a picky eater. And he was like, yeah, I, I picked up on that. He <laughs> never said a word. he he's a he calls himself a professional eater ever since he was a kid. He will eat anything and everything. Mm. um, and sort of it allowed me to, reach out a little bit more, try something on his plate, but just a bite, not, not, not too much pressure to order something and then worry that I can't finish it. So that's what went into that book. And he had said to me at some point, we were living in San Francisco, um, he said, this, this is a book. I really think you should try to turn this into a book. And so I you know, approached people who knew agents. Uh, I worked on a proposal with an agent who loved the idea and she went out and sold it fairly quickly. I mean, now that I know the publishing industry, she sold that really fast.
0: So it became a natural act for you. And at the risk of putting words in your mouth,
1: did that story just sort of flow out of you? Many of the stories in it did because it couldn't just be me and how I got from there to here. I had to do some more digging. I had to talk to scientists, I had to talk to doctors, I had talked to people who worked at feeding clinics to find out. What they know about picky babies, what's the current thinking, the therapies. Uh, I talked to a top researcher at Duke University and uh, Dr. Um, Zucker. She, she, I came across her because she had a, on the Duke website, you could take a test to determine if you were a picky eater because they were studying it in adults because they're trying to adapt the therapies they have for children for adults because it can be really debilitating for adults, um, not just health-wise, but on their social lives, their mental oh, for state. Sure. Oh yeah. God.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. So
1: I took the test and then I reached out to her to ask if I could talk to her. And she gave me wonderful interviews as we talked over things. I, I had so many questions about could this happen this way? Is this why I'm that way? What do you do for this? She was wonderful and later appeared on a forum with me, a Michael Krasny forum with me to talk about picky eating, to talk about suffering succotash, but also, you know, in the larger scale to talk about picky eating. So it was, it was a lot of work. So it flowed in some ways and in other ways it was, I was working on certain chapters and I was thinking, I don't know what I'm doing here. This is a total mess. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And in
0: your head, who was your target audience?
1: Adults who were picky eaters Uh who needed to be felt seen validated, validated and not that picky eating is a immature development phase that you're supposed to grow out of and that you are a child. If you don't, it was to recognize that there are far more adult picky eaters out there than people maybe acknowledge. They Mm -hmm. just know how to hide it better or they don't talk about it. Um, And for frankly, for um, their friends and family to also be given the book to say, maybe you can understand this individual a little bit more. Gotcha. During the copy editing process, I got this wonderful note from my copy editor who said, thank you so much for this book. I feel like I understand my eight-year-old much better now. It was sort of that, if you're not a picky eater, you have no idea how it feels to be one.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, For sure.
1: And I continue to get emails all these years later, which I love, from people saying, this was the book I needed to read, that I felt that I wasn't alone in this, and they've given it to friends and family. My oldest son, who was in fifth grade at the time, had a kid at school who found out about the book and wanted to read it and then wanted to give it to his parents. So it was, it was written for adults, but he felt validated by it.
0: So it was almost a Bible.
1: <laughs> Your words, uh-huh. that That's, would be great. You, you, you can own <laughs> I mean, that. It, it, did, it did become, it was, I feel like it still is the only book that addressed adult picky eating, specifically in that way. I think there's been additional um, things it's usually aimed at children. It's usually parents freaking out about their children right, needing the help. Right. I have one chapter about children because I had at the time when I was writing it, I had a very young son, so I was going through these thoughts myself. It was personal. Mm-hmm. It was personal in that respect. Um, but yes, it, it has become something that people still recommend to each other, and I, I hope it continues to be in print because I think it's one of these very slow people just keep on picking it up and reading it.
0: No, it sounds like it should be in everybody's home as a guide.
1: So talk about making the transition
0: to a younger audience. Where did that come from and how did that come about?
1: Well, so like I said, I had said, I'm done writing. I wrote the book I was going to write. I never saw myself writing fiction because um, I just didn't think I could come up with the stories. Right. Well, also because of your professional past, you didn't really write fiction. Yeah, I didn't write fiction. I never thought if I wrote anything, I would write fiction. It just didn't seem like something that I could just pull out of the air. A natural act. But yes, exactly. But when I was reading picture books to my sons and they were the current picture books, not the picture books I grew up with that I was reading to them initially and thinking, boy, I really don't enjoy reading these books to them. Not that they're not wonderful classics, but it was just sort of, I was exhausted by them. You mean Good Night Moon? I mean Good Night (laughs) Moon. I mean The Little House. I mean, you know, Make Way for Ducklings, all of which I love, But there came a point that there were certain books my kids would drag out that I was like, oh, not this, not this one again. Yeah, To be fair, he was almost three and I was pregnant and I was tired all the time. Gotcha. So the act of reading picture books at the end of the day was exhausting. And I wrote a New York Times motherlode about it, which was um, got really fiery comments because I was a mother who said, I'm sick of reading out loud to my kid. Mm -hmm. Well, soon after that, through friends recommendations i discovered the more current picture book landscape i discovered jonathan classen i discovered uh julie fogliano i discovered so many books that i was thinking wait people write like this we we can write like this these days these mm-hmm. are the kinds of books that are coming out that you know how they're being illustrated and and the stories they're telling and it was specifically a book my mother-in-law gave me and it was a julie fogliano book illustrated by Aaron stead called and then it's spring and it was written in the second person, which I thought mind blowing.
0: Mm-hmm. And my first
1: book, I then wrote in the second person, Backyard Funerals, in the second person. And I thought, I love this so much. I want to live here forever. Can I do this? I'm going to try. And I had some ideas and those ideas didn't work out. But along the way, Hello Star was written at that time in like 2015 And same with the Backyard Funeral and Backyard Funeral came out in 2019 and Hello Star is about to come out. So like I said, I thought I was only going to stick with one. I wanted to prove I could do one, but I loved it so much. I loved the entire world of children's publishing, the collaboration with artists, the books that kept coming out that I was reading and being inspired by. And I want to stay here forever.
0: Why did you write a practical guide to a backyard funeral? What the hell was a catalyst for that?
1: Okay. So I, (laughs) I, okay. I grew up with a a mother who um, has very dark humor. I grew up with Edward Gorey books. I grew up with her having seances in the backyard and (laughs) um, was a big Halloween. That's her favorite holiday. But specifically we had lost a cat And it was unexpected. And our son was pretty young. And I wanted to write a dead cat book, basically, to honor him. And it's a totally different story. And when I took it to editors, I didn't have an agent then, but I had some editors at Chronicle Books who were interested in listening to me because you don't have to be agented for them to listen to you, who said, you know, death books are a hard sell. Uh They are put on a special shelf. And there are some classics already out there that sort of cover these bases, but, you know, keep writing. We'd like to hear more from you. So I never let go of that idea. And so I tried to actually reframe the cat death book to be um, what you would call a character driven book where there was an, a child who was mourning their pet. And it was because the parents had precipitously precipitously cremated the cat and, you know, now is on a box on the shelf and has a picture, you know, what we've done with our cats but when I was growing up, we buried our pets in the backyard. Right. And I was thinking how I could incorporate that into a picture book. I was thinking, well, maybe this little boy needs to have closure and he needs to have a funeral himself. And I was thinking separate on a separate document, what are the steps to what my sister, my older sister and I would do when we had our backyard funerals. And so I was sort of approaching this as like a step-by-step thing that I would in, you know, incorporate into this character-driven book. And the first line I wrote was, well, first, you need something dead, which is still the first line of that book. It never wavered. <laughs> it tells the child honestly and forthrightly from the outset. This is what we're talking about. Right. It's nothing to be afraid of. Well, first, you need something dead turned into um, the end of something wonderful. Uh, practical guide to a backyard funeral. Super long name. That became the book that sold. That became the book that Sterling picked up from their slush pile and said, "I can't stop thinking about this. Is it still available? We want to take this to acquisitions." So it came from that place of mourning, wanting to provide a place of mourning and looking at what in the dead pet books that were out there isn't addressed. what's what facet hasn't been addressed? And this facet of mourning, in in a particular way I felt hadn't been addressed. Usually it was, you love a pet, then the pet dies and you're sad. This took it from the standpoint of your pet is dead. What do we do? How do we proceed? How do you feel it's okay to feel things? So along the way, there's very practical advice. There's funny advice. There's dark humor advice that is truth. I mean, honestly, it's true to kids. I do say, don't dig your something dead up just to see how things are going. And I did have some reviewers think that was just horribly morbid and awful and so insensitive of me. Like, how could she have ever written that? Guess what? I have heard multiple stories of kids who do want to dig up their pets just to see how things are going because Mm -hmm. they are curious, because Mm -hmm. kids are morbid and curious and wonderful. And then I heard a David Sedaris recently was introducing my oldest, David Sedaris, and he told a story about how he would bury things and then dig them up again just to see the decomposition. So there's practical advice, but there's also a lot of room for kids to feel their feelings. I talk about that it's okay to cry at funerals. It's okay to laugh at funerals. Sometimes people do both. Um, I talk about what a eulogy is, and I give an example of a eulogy for a bug. And, you know, the flowers come into it and all of it. And at the end, I do say, even when you're something, you know, what was your something wonderful that is now your something that is buried and the songs have been sung and the flowers placed you may not feel like it's all over. And maybe it's not. Maybe you just need to sit there next to your something wonderful to the grave, you know, and, and talk to them and share stories. And it, it's this very sort of slow validation of like, it's okay to continue to feel sad. That's what mourning is.
0: Are you familiar with the author Anastasia Higginbotham?
1: Yes. Okay. Death sucks. Yeah. Something, something to the
0: effect of death is... I don't know, terrible, but and death divorce. is stupid. Yeah, yes, death is stupid. That's right, and divorce is the worst. Yes. And when we were having a conversation, and of course I read her books. What happened to Grandma? And a parent would say, "Well, she's upstairs sleeping after yeah. Grandma had passed away." Well, when is she going to wake up? You obviously have to gauge your response to the age group, but it was just. So simple how she presented this and you've got to get away from, you know, w- what we know from the past will protect everybody, which is exactly far worse. You well, know? so
1: that's, we took, you know, honestly, we talked to one of our preschool teachers when our cat died to find out how to handle it with our son, who was three. And she said, kids, she gave me a pamphlet that was Mr. Rogers talking about death. And it was kids need to know the truth, but you should just tell them exactly as much as they're asking for, right? You don't, don't give them more than they're asking for. Just answer their their questions, honestly. And in fact, I have multiple projects that aren't yet going to come out that are, are tackling that idea of, I don't think it benefits kids to hide the things that make us uncomfortable or that make us sad. We let our son see us cry. We felt it was important for him to know that it was okay to cry. And that goes for so many other subjects that aren't addressed in picture books that parents would refuse or would prefer not to talk about it. Anastasia Higginbotham's book about racism is it's not something happened in my town. Um, This wasn't, this wasn't my idea, I think Mm -hmm. is what it's about. And it is sort of that same idea of we can't not address these topics just because we don't like them. That doesn't benefit. We're not, we're not helping the kids. In fact, we're, we are hindering their growth. And what we do when we pr- overprotect them is when they in, in do encounter something like death or something worse, when they're older, they don't have the structure of how to handle it because it wasn't introduced within the safe confines of a book. I, I mean, I have people who buy my book because they have a pet they know is going to die, but also Uh, because they want to introduce the idea of death before death comes. Right, right. So it's not just a Band-Aid. It's a, this is a part of life. And yes, it's scary and we don't have all the answers and it's sad, but it's a part of life. And sad is the other side of happy. I mean, we have to have, we have one, we have both. We have to have both. So I feel very strongly about writing about topics even to the younger set that the picture book set. So first of all, they feel seen because there's going to be a lot of kids out there who might have these fears and these thoughts and they're not seeing it reflected in books Then they don't talk about it. They feel weird. They feel like there's something wrong with them. Of course, of course. So yes, I feel very passionately about the honesty that is necessary with children. So your
0: oeuvre is very eclectic. And what I mean by that is the name of this book, Vampire Smarts Guide: The Essential Vampire Pre-Dating Guide. Where are you coming up with this stuff? Okay,
1: so that was a work-for-hire project. There was a company in San Francisco, um, started by two women, and they were called Smarts Co. And they came out with these games. They were there was Wine Smarts, Beer Smarts. Uh, they don't. They never did Cheese Smarts. I told them they should, but uh, Sex Smarts. I did cocktail smarts for them. And then they had me do vampire smarts because vampires at the time it was the twilight era. So they wanted to, it's a trivia game. It's, I wrote up trivia on the cards. It's like a, it's like a, you know, late night game you play with your friends. But in addition to that, they wanted a booklet that talked about, so you want to date a vampire. Here are some things you should know. (laughs) It was a very tongue in cheek thing. And the thing is, while I was on that project, they sold their company to somebody else. So what that title ended up being, it, it, the pre-dating guide, and I think you can only find it in French. Like, I don't even think you can buy it. I have a copy, but I don't know if you can buy it. Um, it's, it was supposed to be a trivia game, but all their trivia games came with these little booklets that included additional information. And this dating guide was the additional information. Yeah, it's very weird. My writing career, I worked on manga. I didn't write it, but they came to me and said, we have the translation of this particular series. It was a it was a culinary based series of teenagers falling in love, one working in a sushi shop and one working in a pastry shop in Japan. And they had the English translation from the Japanese. and They wanted me to rework the language to make it more conversational. So that was another weird project. I loved doing it though, because it was food and I, I included a glossary to define all the food terms that the kids might encounter in the book, especially because a lot of it might not be familiar to Americans. Um, yeah, so I've had a lot of weird projects that I've been happy to, that was other work for hire, that's been happy to tackle because people came to me and said, hey, do you want to do this?
0: Well, and they came to you because they knew you could handle it. So the eclecticism <laughs> of your career it works in your favor. Yeah. Really. Yeah. Really. So much such unusual stuff. So, um, let's move over to hello star, but before we do, I want to incorporate in that book, as well as some of your other books, what's that like to work with an illustrator? How does that work and what's your role in that?
1: So this is such a great question, especially for anybody who doesn't know anything about, um, picture book publishing, which is most people, honestly, and for anyone who wants to get into it. But I get this question from my friends around here. The first thing that I found out was I could write picture books without having to be an illustrator. When I learned that, I thought, oh, that's great. That means I can do this. Okay. So what happens is you write the. if you're the author, you write the text, your agent sells it to an editor, hopefully your editor then works with their art department, their marketing department, thinking about well, how do we see this book? Who do we see for this book for the illustrations? You know, do we see, you know, sketchy watercolor? Do we see pencil drawings? You know, they come up with what... How extensive the
0: art might be.
1: How extensive and the style. So right, my right. for this, for Hello Star, my editor came to me with a list of potentials and she wanted to know how how do these grab you? Do you like them? And And also, do you have anybody that you're thinking of? Do you have ideas? That doesn't always happen. There are plenty of times when the editor just says, okay, and here's the illustrator and contractually you have no power. You don't say no, you know, you're not allowed to, unless there's Mm -hmm. a major reason you don't say no to that. You're just like, okay, well it's their book. Now they bought the book, they bought the rights and it's it's now theirs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they know more when it comes to book design and marketing and sales and what's going to, you know, do well in the market. So at the time of writing the book, well, I wrote in 2015, but when I had it out on submission, when I was hoping to get it sold for a couple of years, I had been following Vashti Harrison on Twitter. And I had seen a lot of her illustrations and gone to her website in which she showed light in darkness, how she depicted reflecting light. I was so overwhelmed by what she did with light. And I had seen that she also did stuff in space. And so Vashti's art had long been in my head as like, boy, she, I bet she could really do hello star. Um, but again, you don't always get what you want in this situation because the editor could have said, nah, we don't see it or she's not available. You know, she's too busy. Right. But I did you know, respond to my editor with what I thought of the list, which I did like, but I also had additional suggestions. And I said, and I don't know if this is possible, but, you know, Vashti is my number one choice. If, if, if we could work that out. And my editor said, well, she is a little Brown illustrator with a different editor. Let's I'll check her schedule and get back to you. And months went by and then she called me one day and said, you're going to want to sit down.
0: And she <laughs> mm-hmm. said, cause
1: Vashti by that point I think by that point, had become or she was about to become a bestseller. Her books were coming out, her little leader's books. And so this was a big deal for me. And it was a big deal, I think, for my editor that we could have this pairing. So wonderful, so excited, just great. And then what happens is there's a long period of nothing. I went through edits with my uh, editor. We went through copy edits and that has to do with how the words are going to be placed on the page so they can pace it out with what the art might do. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. So we went through that and then Vashi was busy on other projects. So it usually takes from time of sale of a, of a picture book to publication. It's two years at least. No kidding. Yeah. Because the illustrator takes at least a year to do the full art. They need to have the art a year ahead of publication. They need to have final art from the illustrator a year before publication. So they can do all the technical color separations and all that kind of stuff that I know less about, but still find incredibly fascinating. So during this time, I would see some art occasionally. Some uh, illustrators will put stuff up on their Instagram or their Twitter feed and say, here are some early ideas. Some are not doing that because it's very private. It's very, they're working, you know, like yeah, I think that's an odd thing to do
0: that, you know, people not involved with the book are seeing, you know? Well,
1: it's, I think it's a way of them processing how they feel about it and sometimes gauging people's reactions. I love seeing early art from, when I'm seeing illustrators working on books that are, you know, friends of mine, I love what they're doing. I told one illustrator, uh, I was like, this looks perfect. She's like, oh no, this is just a sketch. I'm like, how could it be better than this? Yeah, I'm I'm not an illustrator. So I would see some art and get very excited about it. And then getting closer to the publication date or to the year out publication date, the full art came to me as a PDF. And I had seen some spreads before, but there was one spread in particular. It's not the end spread, which you would think would be the one that would do this to me. It was a, it was a middle spread that was so awesome. So awe-inspiring. I cried. I mean, I still, I still tear up when I think about my, my husband had put up the PDF so we could see it on our TV. So it was with the kids, Ah, we were paging mm -hmm, through it. mm -hmm. And I just sat there and I was just, I was in tears over this image. And so it was, it's exciting. You're very impatient to see stuff when you're on the other side of things, but it is not. Because your work was done. My work was done. It was time for me to let go because when you work with an illustrator, it's not. You may have written the text, but it's not your story anymore. It is our story. This is yeah. not my book. This is our book. Wow. The Ooh. illustrator brings their own perspective to it. And there's something that we learn called leaving room for the illustrator, which means you want to write picture books in a way that doesn't over explain or over describe. You want to let an illustrator interpret certain things so they can bring themselves to it. Mm-hmm. And that can be a hard thing to do because you want to tell a story that an editor is going to understand what's going on. So there's things that have to be said. It's a very difficult, delicate process. It's certainly not what some might think just because it's for kids, it's easy because it's for kids. It's way harder than writing for adults. It's just, it's so much harder. You can't write 75,000 words, which is what yeah. uh, suffering succotash was. It's like, they'd prefer you to write 500, tell your story in 500 words, and it better have a story arc and, you know, punch and all, you know, everything that needs to happen there. Um, So it's not as collaborative either, usually, as some people might think. It wasn't Vashti and myself like talking together about, well, I'm going to do this. Oh, well, I like that. Maybe you should do that. That's not how it worked. Some partnerships might work that way. In fact, there are plenty, I think, of authors who talk to an illustrator and say, we should work on something together and they do it and it sells and that's fine. But typically the editor and art director like to keep the author and illustrator separate to do their own thing so that the author doesn't unduly influence the illustrator or maybe upset the illustrator or vice versa. Like it's a very separate process until it comes together at publication. And then, you know, it's, it, the collaboration is all there and it's exciting.
0: So, what was that like for you to write hello star again it's not your first very personal book but about the fact that your son was how about this word bereft <laughs> when he learned what he did about the galaxy and you, i guess you you didn't you didn't see any other options you needed to do this i'm guessing
1: it was very much when people ask me where do you get your ideas that's a, you know common question for all Writers. It literally, the idea was he came to me one night and said he had been so interested in space and stars, memorized all the planets, all the moons that the planets had, and all this information, he was so intensely interested in, in a way that I hadn't been growing up. But my husband was, he's a mathematician and he at one point wanted to be an astronaut. So he was really giving him books and talking to him about space and all of that. And I was learning from my son, from his interest. So he came to me and said, did you know that stars die? Isn't that sad? And he was, you know, he was expressing his empathy, which is a wonderful thing in children that we can capture and reflect in picture books and hopefully parlay that to adults who I think, Mm -hmm. yeah, I think adults should be reading picture books just as much as children. So I thought, what would a child do with that idea of being sad about a star dying. And I was thinking, well, they might treat it like a pet. Like they're trying to take care of it. I sat down that night. It was, it was after dinner when he said this, and I sat down and I got out my laptop and I started writing. And my husband, after a couple of times, like trying to maybe talk to me said, okay, Henry, mommy's writing, let's go get ready for bed. <laughs> so I wrote the first draft in one sitting that night. Wow. It did it's not feel channel- natural act for you for that and for the end of Something Wonderful, these stories have flowed right out in a way that seems, I can't get used to that because it does seem like those are the ones that sell. But on the other hand, I've had plenty that haven't sold. So, but it was very natural. I didn't have to work very hard at the writing of it. And it it didn't change too much between that draft and what uh, is going to be published. There, There weren't a whole lot of changes. I wanted to add... Um, back matter to explain, to sort of be a teacher resource to talk about, because I mentioned, you know, the icy rings of Saturn and Pluto's frozen heart and the wild uh, spinning uh, storm that's been on Jupiter. Yeah, Jupiter, the eye of Jupiter. So I wanted to provide more context for educators to talk about this and to talk about the depths of space and all the scientific information that wasn't in the story because it would bog down the story and you're not going to do it that way. Um, so it didn't really change. It just, it just, it just flowed out. And it is very much a story of what an act of empathy can do, where it can take you in life and also how empathy can connect us in ways that we can't even imagine. And yeah, it's, I mean, it's a little girl who goes from sort of caretaking of a star to at the end, it's almost like the relationship reverses and the star is now the parent.
0: I'm curious, by making your, quote, lead character a girl, Mm -hmm. was that a political statement on your part? Of course, of course. I (laughs) I had a feeling. I I had a feeling. Because of where she winds up and and, and and breaks into a very male-dominated field.
1: Absolutely. I have sons. I am the mother of sons. As am I. I. But I am a feminist and I am raising feminists. So as I did. <laughs> and, and in fact, my boys have never shied away from reading. In our house, there's no girl books and boy books. My kids have read, you know, when there is a main character who's a girl, they read it. This they don't feel that it's not for them. They they have deal. always mm-hmm. read these books. It's not a big deal. When I run the book fair or help to run the book fair at my school, and I get parents to say I, you know, need books, uh, boy books, and I, I take them to where there's Books for girls. I mean, I I take them to the the books that have girl protagonists because it's necessary for girls. Read have always read uh, and and been made to read books about boys and girls, but boys seemingly are at times uh, by teachers, by the gatekeepers, by yeah. parents yeah. opted out of that. So yes, the story originally was this is my son. I'm writing about my son. So it was a boy, but then um, in drafting it, I thought. But I do want this to be a girl, because I think it's important for us not to only have books about trucks and trains and space where it's only male dominated. So right. she became a girl. I want to I mean, she's on the moon at some point in the book. We haven't yet had a woman walk on the moon. I want oh, this to, that's yeah, my I, yeah, I wanted this to be a actually, initially, that scene was supposed to be a spacewalk. She was going to take a walk. By the light of the earth, and it was going to be a spacewalk. And now I want that to be prophetic, I wanted that to be the future. But then we did have like the first woman's spacewalk, and I think there was a picture book that came out about her. So I changed it to A Woman on the Moon, so that is still something for girls to aim for to, to think maybe sure. I can do that. So it was absolutely political in the sense that, um. We need more girls in STEM books, and now we're we're getting them. I mean, there's a lot more out there than there ever were.
0: Right. What do your boys think of your books?
1: <laughs> well, they are they big fans. They are no, they definitely are. They love seeing the art as it comes in this this giant cover that my publisher sent me arrived yesterday during dinner, and we all took turns being photographed holding it. They they for Hello Star. Mm-hmm. Yes, for Hello Star. They get very excited. They think I'm going to be famous, and therefore they're famous. And I have to t- <laughs> I have to tamp down their expectations. That no, I'm not going to be famous. That's not how this works. But they do get very excited about my books, and they will oftentimes forget which ones coming out or say, "Wait, I thought that Hope is hadn't yet been bought, but Hope is is coming out in 2023." So they get very into it. They get disappointed. When books of mine go to acquisitions and ultimately don't sell, um, they are as invested in my career at times as I am. And they like to go to school and talk about it. Can you tell us what Hope Is is about? Hope Is has a very interesting story. Once again, it was a story I wrote in service of another one. I had gone through, uh, this it was right as the pandemic was starting to hit. I had had several books out on acquisition that didn't sell. And I had thought for sure one of them would. And I was really creatively down in the depths of despair. It's not that I can't handle the rejection. It's more that the continuous rejection that we do experience in this, in this industry, because we definitely are getting rejected far more than we're getting accepted. It can make it very hard to dredge up the creative impulse anymore mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. you kind of are like, for what's the point? What's the point? And stories weren't coming to me. I didn't have any ideas and I definitely felt it was because the rejection was so constant and also fresh that I thought, I'm I'm happiest when I have an idea to write about. I really am, even though I know it means it's going to go out in the world and very possibly get rejected and I'm going to be heartbroken for a while. But I really, at this point, it was February of 2020 when I thought, how am I going to get out of this hole? Where is my hope? So I decided to write a character-driven book about a platypus. I don't know why it was a platypus. I've never done an animal book before um, who was looking for her hope. She misplaced her hope. And the gag was her hope was going to be these rose colored glasses that were up on her head the entire time. And she later finds it with the help of her friends. But I was working with an illustrator. I called this having an author illustrator play date. I said, let's just have some fun together. Let's just be creative together. Do you want to like do some sketches based on what I'm writing. And we went back and forth to tell this story. It was so much fun. And the illustrator is Tara Hannon. She was, um, she's, she's agented by my agents. So this was just sort of a unofficial, we're just playing around thing. But I needed my character to be looking for hope in places that we don't often think about finding hope. It wasn't going to be the first crocus of spring or the rainbow after the storm. And, you know, so it was like, Did she lose her hope the last time she went treasure hunting? So where are the places you bring hope and what are you hoping to, you know, what is it that you're hoping for in certain situations? Because it's not just this overarching idea of hope. It's this idea that we bring hope to different situations. So I started collecting them and I started putting them up on Twitter and they started to come out as couplets. I love the California golden poppy. And I had one in a jar at my on my windowsill it struck me, not that I don't know this about flowers, how they close and open with the sunlight and, you know, Mm -hmm, at mm -hmm. nighttime. And I just thought to myself, hope is a poppy awake with the sun. And then I started adding rhyming couplets that didn't really tell a story, but, you know, was stringing together all these different kinds of, hope. Hope is a hill you attack at a run. Cause I'm a runner. And when I run a hill, it is, I hope I can make it. So all these things I started collecting, then the pandemic was happening and I was doing this comfort baking at home. And I thought hope is a smell of baked goods. When you walk in the door, it's that cinnamon. I was making a pie crust. Cause I think I was either making a pie or I was making um, quiche and it was, I hope this pie crust works out. Every time I have to make a pie crust or do any baking, because I'm not a natural baker, it is, I hope this works out. Right. So I was collecting these couplets and another fellow uh, author, picture book author, Christy, who's also represented by my agent, said to me on Twitter, have you sent this to our agent yet? Because- this is a picture book. And I said, no, it's not. It's not. It's I don't do rhyming books and this is not a picture book. There's no story. There's no narrative arc. And she said, Stephanie, this is a picture book. I think you should send it to Jordan. So I did. And Jordan, I worked on actually working on trying to create a narrative arc within these couplets where there's no main character. It's just rhyming couplets. So she sent it out on submission and Nancy Paulson, who is now my editor, apparently based on the timing of when she read it it was one of those instant reads within a half an hour, she emailed my agent with an offer, not I'm taking this to acquisitions. You'll hear from me in a couple of weeks. I really like it. Nancy Paulson has the power to just make an offer. If she likes something there and that's, and that's what happened. And I got the phone call that doesn't usually happen, but is often told about of an instant offer. And so that book, came out of desperation. It came out of having no hope. And then it was coming at a time when more and more of us were losing hope because it was 2020 right. and now it's coming out in 2023. So it's a, it's a, it's a very strange story for that book, but it's very fitting.
0: Wow. Wow. I want to ask you to reflect on looking back over your career. What's your takeaway? What do you feel? How do you feel right now about what you've done? I'm not
1: done yet.
0: I <laughs> What you've accomplished. That's yeah. I, it
1: makes me, the thing about being a writer, at least maybe the thing about me is that I want I want to do more. I want to keep doing this. So I'm proud of what I've done. And I actually have to remind myself, this is how far I've come. I have a hallway that's filled with art that I've bought from other children's illustrators. I love to do this because I just love their art so much. And I frame and I hang it on the wall and I have now three covers of my own hung in that hallway and framed. And I'm going to be adding hope is, and I'm going to be adding another um, unannounced project about a particular event on a playground that everyone has an association with that I'm so proud of, but I don't get to talk about it yet. But I will be adding two more covers to that wall. And that wall reminds me of how far I've come, how far I want to go. And I need, to, I need the reminder a lot to think, wow, don't get so out of sorts as I do all the time about being on submission and the rejections. Just you did all of this. You're going to do more. Just try to sit with this happiness right now. That's and something in I, the really, moment. I have to be in the moment. I, I try so hard to be in the moment. It is so hard for me to do. I'm always looking I down get the road. That. I'm as good as that. my next project. You know, what have you done lately? You know, I've got a year where books aren't coming out. And for authors that can feel very challenging, even though I have two years after that with more books coming out. So I just have to remind myself that I have asked for the stars quite literally, and gotten them because I've worked my way up to it and I've had some luck and I've had wonderful people to work with who have wanted to support me, including my family, um, and had seen my ideas for what they were. And I'm I'm, I'm lucky. I feel very lucky that I am where I am, but I also know that I've worked really hard for it.
0: Well, and not for nothing to come from a place where you just outright said, I can't write.
1: I said, so no one wants to read what I'm yeah, writing. Yeah, a, I write. Yeah, exactly. I'm not good enough. So we made a, a liar out of you. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, every book that I write, I will say it's still a learning experience. I learn with every book I write because I'll have a different editor who wants something different, and I have to pivot and, and figure have that, that
0: Flexibility, out. yeah. But I
1: love it because it continues to build in my brain the idea that I'm, I'm, I'm building those neurons. I'm making those pathways connect. And that's always going to make me a better writer in the future.
0: That's a perfect way to end on such a high note. Well, Stephanie, it was such a pleasure to meet and get to know you and you know,
1: really get involved in your life. I can't thank you enough for sharing all of that with us. Well, thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed this conversation. I love talking about the art of writing and I love trying to be someone who can offer the encouragement of. I understand how hard it is because I don't think anybody should say it's easy. And because if you say something's too easy, you negate your achievements. Exactly. And because you've been there, done that. So keep us
0: abreast of what's going on in your life, okay? We'd love to hear back from you. Definitely. Anytime. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein.